0: Okay, I'm glad you're here. I'm going to uh to talk about uh uh sleeping or actually the, the the moments before sleeping uh today. It's a it's a it's a really really important uh part of a person's day, especially in terms of just their their heavenly service. <clears throat> and I want to kind of go into more detail what I mean by that, but um beforehand, I just want to just just mention just a a a couple of things. Um, so, so, so yesterday, yesterday I had this moment, um, I don't know whether to tell you the, the classic story first or the personal experience first, I'll tell you the personal experience first. So I was walking to shul, um, yesterday, and this, uh, these three people, um, two women, or maybe it was three women, and, uh sort of a, a, probably it was about a two-year-old in a in a baby carriage, were walking in one direction, I was walking in the opposite direction, and the kid was a little bit boisterous, um, you know, he was moving around a bunch, and uh, they they went past me, and I went on my way, and, you know, that was that. There was no, uh, nothing, no interaction at all. Uh, a block later, and I was on my way to hear a talk from someone that I was already a little bit late for, so I, I really kind of wanted to get there for that a block later i saw there's a um a uh, a yamaka on the sidewalk and i walk that path pretty often and there's there's never any there's never anything like that there so i kind of and it's a velvet yamaka so it was kind of like a kid style yamaka and i put two and two together and i realized oh that kid who was kind of bouncing around that must have been his yamaka and it fell off his head and then I turned around me and they were a good block and a half up. And I, I have a head cold right now and I'm just, I'm not feeling great. And, and I thought, well, maybe I'll just pick this up and just kind of elevate it so that they see it and I'll put it off on the side on the ledge over there. And then I thought, Oh man! I, you know, I, I, I know that that that's that kids. I know that that that's that kids. I know it. And there is a mitzvah. There is a mitzvah to return lost property. And but I'm late for this thing. And uh, And then I I just thought to myself, do I want to be the person who just leaves this here? I mean, who do I want to be? And then I thought, no, I don't want to be that person. And then, even though it took a lot of effort, more effort than I wish, I, I would like to admit that it wouldn't take that much of an effort, just to, you know, to be like, you know, you know it says, be light like an eagle in Per Kayavos, right? That's, that's what this is referring to. Light like an e- eagle is a special blessing, a spiritual Talent that a person should have, where they're you know agile, where they can just pick it up, turn around, and go. They don't have to go through this uh, angst ridden process of whether to do the right thing or not. You know, so I was not like like an eagle at this moment, um, but I, I but but at the same time, I didn't want to be the person who just kind of left it there. You know, because that that's when that is the 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 unfortunate process where one's heart begins to harden, and there are repercussions to to things like that. Now, I wasn't thinking about that at the time, but I'm just telling you that now, you know, on on further reflection. Um, By the way, there's an interesting uh, halachic discussion. This is a good question you can ask a a table full of people if you ever want to sort of start a discussion, which is, what is the bigger mitzvah? to hand some one person a $100, or to hand a hundred people $1? So the Rambam himself actually addresses this question. And he says that the bigger mitzvah is actually to hand a hundred people $1. Now, I'll explain why in a moment. Don't, don't get confused. If there's someone who has a life or death emergency and he needs $100, then that's already a different category. Because that's, that's, that's the category of saving a life. You understand? So don't, don't misinterpret the question. There would be instances where it would be a bigger mitzvah to give one person $100. But we're talking about all things being equal. That's, that's the point. So why? So the, I heard in the name of the Rambam that the answer is, is that, that the act, you see, the heart is like a muscle. And just like every other muscle in your body, it needs to be worked out and it needs to be honed and trained and kept fit. And if you give $101 bills around, you are working this heart muscle in such a way where you're keeping an open heart. Whereas the other way, it might be a bigger sum of money, but it's just once. So, so one of the interesting things about that, that point is that um, you realize that, that when you do kindness, that as much as the recipient is the beneficiary... The the giver is also the beneficiary, and you really see that in in the idea that if you give it a hundred times, that that's that's geared toward your benefit. Um, I heard an amazing an amazing uh, an amazing Torah actually. I was at the uh, the shul dinner, the 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 the, the Karlbach, uh, shul dinner uh, in New York. There's a whole story behind that it was a great dinner great event and um, this past week um, and and one of the uh, award recipients uh, said the following point which i just loved which is that you see when you there are different ways halakhically according to Jewish law to get married and no, one of the ways is that the that the husband um, gives a gift to the to the uh, to the bride, and usually in contemporary society, that's done as a ring, which has a certain monetary value, and that's that's how it's done. But it's not so much so. In other words, when we give a ring under the chuppah in our marriage ceremony, it's not so much that it's sort of like a token of affection or a symbolic thing. There's actually a transaction happening there, where you're actually giving a a, a monetary value. Which is why there are all sorts of different um, halachas surrounding what the ring can look like. It, it can't be it can't be patterned and things like that. It has to be sort of like a, a something that's like a, a lump of silver or a lump of gold, something of value, basically. So, so anyway, there is an instance though, where um, where if the person is very 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 great, you see. You see, you see this, this halakha concerns... The, the reason why the, the um, husband is giving it to the wife is because the, 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 the wife is of such great value, such great esteem, that he wants to acquire this incredible thing. But there's an instance where the woman could actually present it to the man. And that's, and that's compared to that if someone were to marry a king, that what does a king need? A king doesn't really need anything. So if someone is of such exalted stature, the act of giving to that person and having someone like on the level of a king accept your gift is such an honor for the giver that the giver becomes like a receiver. So in other words, there are instances in life where, where really we have to understand that, that to give is to receive. Because, because to give, you're connecting yourself to Hashem Himself, who's what's more exalted than God. And that God allows you to do this awesome act is a gift in and of itself. That's why we have a, a, a principle, Pirkei Avos brings it, which is, which is that the reward for a mitzvah is a mitzvah. In other words, God says, you want to serve me? I'm going to give you the most awesome reward in the entire world. I'm going to allow you to serve me more. And that's all these, all, these principles are all tied together. So, so anyway, I picked up the yarmulke and I turned around and I walked really, really quickly because, you know, you're not supposed to run on Chavez, really, you know. Mm-hmm. So I walked really, really quickly and I caught up with the people and I... I just presented the yarmulke, just, I'm not like, oh, does this belong to you? Just like here, you know, because I knew. And they turned around and they went, oh, great, oh, thanks, you know. And then turned around and went to the talk, you know. So, so it reminded me of a story, one of my favorite stories, actually. Which is, the Sansa Rebbe, one of the great Hasidic masters, you know, was by his window and he called over, uh, one of his Hasidim were walking, and he called him over to his window, and he says to him, hey, listen, if you, I heard this from Reb Shlomo, if you walked on the street and you found a bag of money, what would you do? And the person said, uh, well, you know, that's very valuable and it's a lost object. I would um, I would find out who it belongs to, and I would Uh, return it. And the Sansa Rebbe says to him, Fool! (laughs) Right? So, okay. So then someone else walks by. And he calls him over. And the Sansa Rebbe asks him the same question. You find a bag of money, what do you do? And the man says, Well, Rebbe, I'm embarrassed to tell you this, but times are tough. And, you know, if no one saw and it was right there, I'd probably pocket it. And he said, Wicked! (laughs) 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 So... So then he calls someone else, and, and he tells him the same situation, and he asks him what he would do. And he says, Rebbe, listen. He says, I don't know what I would do. He says, I hope that in that moment I would do the right thing. And he said, ah, that's the answer. You know, because the truth is, is that the, the heart is a very, the heart is a very mysterious place. And sometimes we decide that we know where, what level we're holding on, and it's um, a lot of times it's just vanity, arrogance, an illusion, wishful thinking. Fill in the blank. You don't know where you're holding until you're confronted with a situation, and then you react to that situation. That's when you know, not beforehand. And so, so a person. Has to have an attitude about themselves, which is that, which is someone who's just emergent, basically. And I want to give you an example of that. But first, I want to just uh, share a couple more things. We had uh, uh, Magid Yitzchak Buxbaum um, with us this Shabbos, and he said over a lot of wonderful things. And one one of the teachings, I'd maybe give you just a little, kind of short package of some of the some of the things that he said but one of the things that he said which I really loved he said in the name of the Zidduch Rabbi, um Rebbe uh, one of the great he was sort of more of a Kabbalist but he was also a Hasidic master and uh, actually I remember uh, a teaching, a story uh, that, that um Rabbi Shlomo said about the Zidduch Haver, that he was one of these people We, you know we've been so blessed we've been so blessed with such incredibly incredible tzaddikim, holy people the jewish people and the the world really doesn't know about the art tzaddikim. they they don't really know about them you know which is too bad but we don't really know about them which is even worse but <laughs> but anyway um this is the zitchamer you know ritual immersion going to the mikveh is uh you know that's 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 a really important thing, and and it's the the really the the core mitzvah of it is between men and women. Um, it's really uh, for for women, but it's for the for the for the, 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 the holiness of the marriage, and and that's a whole other topic. But 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 men also have a special relationship. It's more on the level of custom than than law with the mikvah. And over the years, you know, especially in Russia and stuff like that. You know, you'd, where would you go to the Mikla? You'd go to a river, and the rivers were frozen. And so you have many stories of people chopping the layer, top layer of ice and going into the water. Now, I don't know if you've done that. I know you've done that, but, but going into freezing cold water is what I mean. It's, it's serious business. If you, if you immerse yourself in a cold river or in a cold pool, I've done it myself, not chopped ice off. That would but I I have I have been underwater where the only thing that's that's going through my head is I'm going to die. But I'm having a heart attack. I'm having a heart attack. You know? And I'm being totally serious right now. I mean it is a very it's it's rough, you know? So anyway. The the, the would go in like the middle of the night. He would chip open some a, a hole in the ice. He would immerse himself halfway, and he would set up a copy of the Zohar on the ice and light a candle and learn. Right. Now this is it, this is not a story. This is real. Now. Someone was with him. I'm not sure. I don't want to say a name. I, I've got a couple of ideas, but I don't want to say a name. Another great person was with him. And he was like, what do you, you do? I, I, can't, I can't do that. And the Zittichoi returned to him and he said, oh, you don't know how to make the water warm? Right? So that's, you know, there are all these levels out there that not only can't we do, we don't even know that they're possible. And so, 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 why do I bring it up? Just to tell you a, a short thing about the greatness of the Ziddhachver. So anyway, uh, Magid Buxbaum said the following in his name. He said, I never leave a piece of Torah until I don't know what it means. <laughs> That's an awesome level. That's an awesome level. And we talk about becoming. And and not knowing who you are in the sense of what your level is or I would have returned the money or I would have done this or I would have done that. It's it's all nonsense. It's all nonsense. You know? Until you're in that moment. So so the greatness of not knowing. Now do you think the Zitachaiver, whose brain I'm sure was like the size of a planet, right? Do you think the Zittacher would spend a lot of time on a piece of Torah and not know what it meant? You don't think that he came up with 5, 10, 15 explanations of what's going on in terms of the psukim and the letters and its relationship to Halacha and Kabbalah and Hasidus and Midos and everything like that? But then you have to conclude after you know with the fact that this text is infinite and what do I know? And that's the proper conclusion of how you leave a text. Now, don't, mis- don't misinterpret what I'm saying. It doesn't mean it's sort of like, oh, it's all the same. You say this, I say this, well, nobody knows. That's not Jewish. We have, we have something called Pshat. Pshat means the simple meaning of the text. We know. That's what it says. Right? But then there are levels, and there are levels, and there are levels. And and, and so there's, there's a level of knowing, in terms of practical guidance, in terms of our religious behavior, and then there's an open-heartedness, open if that's a word, which is what I'm talking about, this level of the open heart, where it requires you not to know, to be in a state of constantly becoming, which is a state of year. It's a state of awe. It's a state of uh, aniviskai, the state of being humble and, 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 and humility. So, so there's a, a line that um, Reb Leibola Eger uh, explains, and um, I heard from Rabbi uh, Weinberger, actually, at the Esh Kodesh, that, um, that when he became a Rebbe, that this was the first um, Devar Torah that he gave. And it's on this subject. So, so it's, it's really special. And, you know, there was, there was, we just read about it in Parsha's Karach, there was a rebellion in the desert against uh, Moshe. And, you know, it's, it's such a contemporary thing. It's probably the most contemporary thing in the entire Torah. Because, you see, you see, a lot of people ask a question, and good people, and I've, I've been among the people who have gone on this rant. I think everyone at some point who takes Torah study seriously, at some point goes on this rant, which is, "...did you saw the miracles in, in Egypt?" And, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the miracles of Mount Sinai, and the, and the mana falling every single day, and, and everything like that. How could they have complained and everything like that? But, and everyone asks that. And I think, it's, I think that it's deeper than that. I think that the, 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 the greater point, because, can I tell you something? Are we seeing anything less miraculous Do you realize that existence itself is phenomenally more, phenomenally more miraculous than any of these things? That all these things are just subcategories of the miracle of existence itself? You know what I mean? I mean, the fact that you exist, the fact that there's a world around you, the fact that you think that you exist within this world around you? The fact that you remember where you put your car keys? (laughs) Honestly, I'm being totally serious right now. You know, my favorite example in the entire world, can't stop saying it, I imagine a conversation between two fish, and one fish says to the other, do you believe in water? And the other fish says, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. Right? So what's the joke? There's nothing but water. It's the only thing that there is. That's us. We're surrounded and immersed with godliness. All there is is God. That's the only thing that exists is God. It's the only thing that exists. And we look around and we say, is there a God? What a joke. I mean, it makes more sense to question whether you exist or not because if you exist, God definitely exists. So, so the point is, is that we're so, so immersed in miracles, and yet we ourselves don't see it. So we, we had the chutzpah, really, to be critical, of the Jews in the desert saying, so of course bread falls from the sky. Didn't always fall from the sky, but now it falls from the sky. What do I know? You know, used to be there was no Seinfeld. Then, every Thursday night, there was a Seinfeld. Now there's no Seinfeld. You know, I mean, it's like, what do I know? Oh well, Yeah, you're right, it wasn't that way. Now it is that way. Maybe it won't be that way. But, I'll give you the, the dark version of this. In, in the documentary Shoah, which if you haven't seen, you should see. Uh, it's hours and hours, and just uh, an incredible experience. They interview a Polish farmer who had the, the, the plot of land next to Auschwitz, next to the death camp of Auschwitz, right? Because you have to figure, just, you know, use your head at a certain point, Auschwitz has to end, and another property has to begin, right? So that that was the reality. And this was the guy whose land was next to Auschwitz, so this is the the biggest death camp in the history of humanity. Nothing compares with this, really. So the person asked him um and the whole thing is done in incredibly measured, slow pace. It's like a very you know, almost hypnotic kind of experience watching this film. Claude Lansbaum was the uh the, the director, the writer. He said, um did didn't you hear the screams? And the Polish farmer said, yeah, but, you know, after a while, you get used to them. So, there's a big lesson there in terms of a an open heart, a closed heart, taking action, not taking action, which is one of the One of the scariest, let's say, aspects of being a human being is the rapidity, the quickness to which we can adjust to new situations. And sometimes that's a great blessing. All our loved ones should live long, and if any of our loved ones are ill, they should have a speedy recovery. But, you know, we recover from the death of someone we love. And that becomes the new normal, right? So, in some ways, it's a blessing. But on another level, it's not a blessing at all. Because we can become accustomed to darkness. And I heard one time a a story... A person walks into, you know, I think we've all had this experience where you're in a bright sunny day and then you walk into a movie theater or something like that or a dark room and it's like you can't see anything. It's like you're blinded, right? So a guy walks from a bright sunny day into this dark room and he's like blind, you know? And a person says, don't worry, your eyes will adjust to the darkness. And he says, God forbid! And he turns around and runs out of the room. You know? So, so there's a rebellion against Moshe in the desert. And, basically, Korach says something. He says, look, we're all holy. All of us are holy. So, how come we have to take our marching orders from him? You see, but, but the thing is, is that there is a structure to reality, and reality is hierarchical, meaning there are levels. There are there there are levels, and there's a structure. You know, we've talked about it many times. This idea that God, when He created the world, took His Orient self, light without end, and He condensed it. Like this is one of the understandings of Tzimtzum. He condensed his light from an ethereal spiritual state into a physical state, which is this world. In other words, materiality itself is condensed spirituality, right? And it's one direct continuum. So those people who say, well, I'm not spiritual, it's like you're nothing but spiritual. Or the, the, the physical and the spiritual are two different ideas, I'm not open to spiritual ideas. No, you don't understand. It's one idea. It's one continuum. It goes from the spiritual to the physical. It just gets more and more solid. Right? The example, just if you're having trouble visualizing that, that I always like to give is, imagine ice. That's the, that's the molecule H2O. And then you have water. Different, looks different. But it's also the molecule, molecule H2O. Then you have water vapor. You can't even see it. But it's also the molecule H2O. In other words, this is all godliness. But it just becomes more solid around us. And of course, God, a very important understanding, God doesn't just fill this entire world, but he exists dimensions beyond it as well. See, to say that God equals the world and the world equals God, that's, that's heresy, actually. That's not Judaism. God fills this entire world, and he exists dimensions beyond as well. So, so this idea of of becoming. You see. You see, Korach says about about Moshe, we're all we're all holy. So why do we have to listen to you? Because there is a structure to the world, and God communicated his will to the leader. There are leaders. It's a real thing. Every system has a leader. Every system has a leader. An atom has a nucleus. Right? A baseball team has a captain. Right? A business has a CEO. Every, every structure in nature. Right? A human has a brain. Every, every system that's found has an organization and a structure, and the universe itself is hierarchical as well. You know, to give you another example, when Adam was commanded by God to name all the creatures, he names all the creatures, and then the Medrash goes on to say, this is not in the Chumash, but the Medrash goes on to say, God turns to Adam and says, and what's my name? And Adam says, I don't need my master. In other words, we, we recognize that God is our master. God is above us. And there's nothing embarrassing about that. A lot of us feel like, well, what does it mean? I have a master? Ah! That's embarrassing. I'm the master. I'm in charge. I'm the boss. And to the extent that I'm not the boss, then what am I? Then I don't know what I am. Then I'm a robot or a slave or I'm a piece of filth or I'm Nothing. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? You're serving the, the creator of heaven and earth who puts a piece of himself in you? What's to be embarrassed about? It's reality. It's reality. So Clark says, no, we're all holy. We're all holy and I want to be the boss. <laughs> Which is, you know, which is great. It's just sort of like, you know, one of the, one of the hot punchlines right now on TV, especially in kids' TV, is, is someone says a joke and then says, wait for it, wait for it, right, you know? So it's sort of like, you know, someone says, you see, Rashi brings this, I love this to pieces, something everyone should know. All great lies begin with the truth. When the, when the uh, spies come back, the meraglim come back and they report about the, the, the Israel to the Jewish people, they begin with praises of the land, right? Why? Because that's the truth. The land is good. That opens up your heart. You hear the truth, your heart opens up. But then they stick in the lies, right? You begin with the truth and then... So every great lie begins with the truth, just to open up your heart, and then they stick in all the lies, so, you know, a lot of times when they speak and Hara, when they say something uh, um, holochically impermissible, gossip, whatever it is, they say, listen, I don't want to say anything bad. <laughs> or, listen, I love the guy. And right. then, boom! <laughs> right? <laughs> then, boom! So, So, you know, it's like, wait for it, wait for it, you know, Korah, we're all holy. Wait for it, and I want to be in charge. There it comes. You know? I'll t- just tell you, just before we s- switch off of Korah for a moment, then hopefully we'll be able to say something about sleep. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we'll have time. But anyway, so... What is When so, just, uh, just, just quickly, yeah. uh, when... when, when, uh, when when Hashem was speaking to Moses about his, his, his plan for him in, in, in freeing the slaves, and, he was, uh, and, and Moses asked him, well, what, what shall I call you? What is your name? Yeah. Well, what, did, what, was, what was Hashem's response? He says, "Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh," I will be what I will be. And uh, the Gomorrah actually gives an amazing explanation of what that means which is just like I'm with you in this exile, I'll be with you in future exiles. And Moshe says, what? There's going to be future exiles after Egypt? And then if you look at the passage where that exists, all of a sudden, um, uh, Moshe just refers to Hashem agrees. That in other words, that the people's minds won't be able to hold the fact that this is just a chapter in our history. See, the Jewish people are forever. You know, the nations of the world are just kind of beginning to wrap their minds around the fact that the Jewish people are eternal. We're not going away. You know, they come up with their own theologies and all the rest. But the reality is, is that the Jewish people are forever. If you look in the Torah itself, God says, I'll never forsake you. I'm always going to be with you. You know, I'll hide my face. You'll go through hard times. Anti-Semitism itself is actually one of the prophecies in the Torah itself. By Moshe, so you're gonna get a hard time from the nations, but just understand, I'm always with you. You know, so, so, so Moshe then just refers to Hashem's name in the next passage as just, ehyeh, I am with you. Not, and I will be with you. And in fact, a lot of people don't know this, when Moshe, the whole incident of the burning bush was seven days long. It looks like just, it was just a few moments. It was seven days long Moshe refused to take the Jewish people out of Egypt. And the best explanation I ever heard of why he did that was because Moshe was saying, This has to be the final redemption. Right now, this has to be the final redemption. And he was holding out. And Hashem was like, No, it's, it's, it's just not, that's not where we're at right now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, finally Moshe gives in. And and one of the consequences of Moshe holding out for seven days is he doesn't become the high priest. Aaron becomes the high priest. It's one of the consequences. The Torah says he loses the the mantle of being the koin dadal, which is what Korach wanted. So, So anyway, by the way, that ties in really nicely with something that I heard from Rabbi Wilson, which is Korach in a way was like Moshe. Because Korach, you see, it says that all the Leviim are going to become Kahanim when Mashiach comes. And Korach was a Levi. And if he becomes the Khaim Gadol, then that's the fulfillment of this Messianic promise. So he was actually trying to bring Mashiach. This is the favorable reading of Korach. Mm -hmm. You know? And so, in other words, it's sort of like he also was trying to bring Mashiach. But again, you know, God's got his time plan. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. You want to bring it too quickly, it's, it's, uh, it's always very tricky. It's always very tricky. So, I want to throw in one more thing, because I think it's important, and then hopefully we can wrap up some of these things we're developing. Um, which is that one of the things, you see, a person has to be, there's something called leisonos. Leitsonos means, it would be translated, to, I wish I could find a more contemporary word. It's a bit of an old-fashioned word, but it, mockery. I wish I could come up with a better word. But it's, it's sort of like a, a sarcastic humor, which undermines the, the, the truth and um, reverence for certain spiritual ideas. And one can accomplish negatively, quite a bit, with a sarcastic negative joke. It says the rabbis say that one can undo a hundred teachings with one joke. So one has to be very careful when they decide to be humorous, at what moment. If you decide to undercut a sermon or something like that with a witty remark, it might be legitimately witty, and it might be legitimately funny, and you might have undone a hundred different teachings. You know, one really has to really hold their tongue at these moments. And the reason why I bring it up is because Korach was known as a master of this. Uh, and one of the things that he did, and I just want to bring it up, is he presented, you know, one of the mitzvahs we have in the Torah. Actually, it's not, it's not making a return um, because we actually lost the dye. There's a blue thread in the tzitzis, in the strings that we wear on the four corners of our garments, called t'cheles. And now they feel as though they found the dye again after a 2,000-year hiatus. That's a fascinating subject in itself. Um, and by the way, even if you use the wrong blue dye, it doesn't undermine the mitzvah of tzitzis. So that's a reason why everyone should use one of them. I, I want to, I, I should, but I haven't quite committed to it yet. But anyway, techeles is a great thing. So, so, so Korach held up a talis, right, the, the prayer shawl, completely made out of blue dye. And he goes up to Moshe in front of all the people and he says, Moshe, look, I've got an entire talus made out of tehalus, out of this blue dye. Do I need one more string? And Moshe says, yeah, that's the halacha. One of the strings has to be blue, meaning the strings that hang from the corner. And then Korach went and turned around and ridiculed Moshe and halacha, Torah law, in front of all the people saying, look, I've got an entire Talos, full of full blue dye, and yet it's lacking one string, so it's not good enough. What kind of nonsense is all of this? Now, I have my own analysis of this, which I haven't seen, but I just, it just seems so obvious. But uh, the reason why I bring it up is because of the practical application to, to what I'm about to say. You see, the mitzvah of tzitzis is the following thing. You're supposed to have these strings, and they're all tied in a very particular way, right? Which parallels the 613 mitzvahs. It's a very deep subject in itself. Um, but you put them on the four corners of your garments. Now, it doesn't matter what the garment is made out of. The, the, in terms of the actual performance of this mitzvah, the point is, is that you have, if you have a four-cornered garment, you need this special sequence of threads and knots hanging from the four corners. You understand? In other words, it's the, the 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 essence of the mitzvah is the strings that hang from the corners, not what the garment itself is made out of. It can be made out of plutonium, it can be made out of saran wrap, it can be made out of a rug. It, it's irrelevant. The point is, is that if you're making a four cornered garment, this has to hang from the four corners. Now, it's a subject in itself. What, what, how are these strings composed? One of them has to have a blue thread. You understand? that There's no connection whatsoever between whether the garment itself is made out of Techelis or not. Sits this go on a four cornered garment. Why am I bringing this up? Because there, so you see that, 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 that um, Karach's question wasn't a real question. Because really the question is, is that how do you make the knots and how do you make the threads and everything like that? Once you have any four-cornered garment, you're, you're in business. So. so anyway, bottom line is this. In our lives, sometimes people bring up some brilliant philosophical questions, but they're completely beside the point. You know, you know we have a tradition that the Mashiach, right?, doesn't come on Shabbos, won't come on Shabbos. So by Chabad, you know, they were singing, we want Mashiach now, we don't want to wait, on Shabbos. And someone asked the Rebbe, our tradition is that the the Messiah doesn't come on Shabbos. So the Rebbe said back to him, you know what, let him come, and then he can explain how he came on Shabbos. (laughs) So, so, You know, people can have all sorts of amazingly brilliant, profound, confounding, right? Like mind-numbing questions and arguments and all the rest. But the reality is is that I wake up every morning in my bed and I want to do, I need to know what to do with my life. Why am I here? Why is the world here? What's keeping it going? Why doesn't it fall apart? Why do I put my foot on the floor and it doesn't go through the floor? How is it possible that anything continues to exist? I'm given a few moments in this world. How can I use them properly? Don't give me philosophies about how nothing matters and just follow your bliss and pick your nose and, you know, make yourself feel good. And we're all right, everybody's right. Doesn't I mean you have to be obnoxious or fight with people. But I mean, there's a structure to society, there's a structure to reality. We have to respect that. And not to disempower each other, God forbid. Not as Reb Shlomo would say, to cut the wings off each other, God forbid. But there's no fundamental contradiction. So, so Korach makes a rebellion against Moshe. Here's two important points that I've been leading up to. One is, yes he, makes a, yes, he makes a rebellion against Moshe. Because people want power. People are people. People are human beings. People adjust to everything, even if they're surrounded by miracles. At a certain point, if you know people well enough, that shouldn't surprise you anymore. The Ram says very importantly, we're not we don't believe in God because of miracles. It's more than that, it's deeper than that. It's not show me a miracle and then I'll believe in you. It's garbage. It's deeper than that. So, yeah, we got used to miracles. We get used to everything. We get used to even Moshe. So why shouldn't the richest person, Karl was the richest person among the Jewish people. You think there's a a correlation between someone who has a lot of money and someone who thinks that they should be running the show? There's a direct correlation. And he also happened to have been super brilliant on top of it. I feel sorry for him. You know, can you imagine? Someone with such brilliance and such money, you have both of those things, I feel sorry for you. (laughs) Because I can only imagine the temptations that you're being confronted with on a regular basis. Because you're so gifted. Not because you're not gifted. Because you're so gifted. The demons that you have to battle. And so, the Torah took place, and it's a real story. These are real events that that all happened. And so, for me, it gives me a lot of faith in the Torah itself that someone made a rebellion against Moshe. Because, why shouldn't they? I mean, look at every society under the sun. People are always trying to defeat the leader. So why shouldn't that be the case here? And if it is, why isn't it recorded? Well, it is the case here, and there it is recorded. But also to understand that, it's, that there's no contradiction between the fact that all of us have holiness, like Korach was correctly saying, and the fact that there is a leader, and that's Moshe, who speaks for God. And there's no contradiction, there's no problem whatsoever. That there's an order to reality. It's not an issue. And so I wanted to spend a little bit more time on this idea of sleep, but I'm going to say it in two minutes. Because really all of this in a weird way has been an introduction to this idea. It's very important when you go to sleep to acknowledge the fact and you say it with your own language in addition to whatever else you say before you go to sleep. God, I'm going to sleep now so that I should have the strength to serve you better tomorrow. The reason why that's really important to say is because there's certain... You see, if you're an employee on the job, right? How do you leave the office? A lot of people have to punch out. That's an affirmation that they actually work there. That there is a boss there. (laughs) See, at a certain point in our lives, God gives us so much leeway. And He makes Himself so evident and so invisible simultaneously. That he allows us to think that we're the boss and we're the master. And that we just work for ourselves and that we do a favor to God by by doing anything. Doing you a favor, God. So when a person checks out for the day, they have a chance to re-acknowledge in a very, very real way. We can say, God, I serve you. I'm not checking out. I'm not just going on vacation right now. I'm not playing hooky. Right now, I'm going to sleep right now so that I can have more strength to serve you. Because it's your world. And I'm so blessed to be in it. Okay. Have a great week.